Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler. We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us, a journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived. So join us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? No, a summer's day is not a bitch. Welcome back <laughs> to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. We're doing William Shakespeare. I'm getting drunk. Love is stupid. Tragedy is for whores. We're getting all up in this. Let's do some Billy Shakes, huh, Hannah? Tragedy for whores needs to be the next t-shirt. I would wear the shit out of that. <laughs> Tragedy is for whores. Wow. Yeah, I'm coming in hot. It's apparently been a week. Uh, it has been. I twisted my ankle last night. Oh my I couldn't even walk this morning. I had to call into work. Uh, luckily, my wife pumped me full of ibuprofen and uh, Klondike bars and uh, forced me to hang out with my son while she played video games. <laughs> you know, give and take in the relationship. Definitely give and take. So uh, here we are both in the studio. Cheers. White Claw and whiskey. Um, yeah. White whiskey, as they call it. Do they call it that? Uh, no, that's a joke stolen from my brother, my brother, and me, because he put White Claw in red wine and started calling it white wine. Ew. Yeah. Was this Cameron? No, no, no. This is a, a different show, a popular show, a, probably one of the most popular podcasts in the world. My brother, my brother, and me. Oh, I thought you were talking about, about your- me and my brother. What? No. Okay, well, it's not that popular because I haven't heard of it. <laughs> Uh, Beck and I actually went and saw them live last night, so that was fun. See, your week hasn't been so terrible. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you ever sit in a room with 10,000 other people all wearing masks and there's no AC? Oh, no. I refuse to go to public events until yeah. I don't have to do that. Yeah. Uh, I thought we were over that, and it wasn't till like... That's because you live in two Oregon. Two hours, yeah. Two hours before the show started, I got an email where they're like, hey, just so you're aware, you have to wear a mask and show vaccination cards Jeez. and your ID. And uh, I'm like, I, I, everyone's gotten it. <laughs> everyone's gotten it. I think we're all good. Everyone's in the, in the club now. I think we can just go ahead and move on with our lives. I think I've given up on ever going to like a concert or anything again in my lifetime. Yeah. It's been two and a half years. It's interesting to me, like it was it was such a culture shock being there because you have a lot of people who are like very against the mask mandates and stuff that happened and masks now even. Um, and then you have the people around us, Becca and I, who are making fun of the people that are annoyed about the masks. So Becca and I just sit there silently because we're like, we don't like the people behind us. We're not going to be aggressive like the people in front of us. Um, and like at, 
at the beginning of the show, they basically are like, hey, everyone, just so you're aware, these are the emergency exits. Um, so if something happens, you can leave. And then they go into the mask mandate zone. They're like, you have to keep your mask on. And if you don't like our policy, you can just use the emergency, the emergency exit. exits that we just pointed out. And I thought, oh, that's funny. But then at the same time, I was like, that's such a bullshit hostage situation of like, oh, do you enjoy us and our comedy and you just paid hundreds of dollars to be here well we just imposed this rule at the last minute and if you don't follow it and you don't like it and you complain about it in any way you get to lose out on enjoying us and your money yeah no refunds i'm sure i was like i as i sat there watching them, i was like I, i'm kind of mad at them right now <laughs> <laughs> but then they're funny and i moved on because i over don't it. i don't really hold a grudge like that so well that will probably uh, make it so you have a long, healthy life. Yeah. Don't die early from stress. I might die early from COVID, though. Oh, you, man. You never know. Anyway, this is not a COVID show. This is a book show. This is a show for people who don't go out into the world. They're too busy reading books um, and being introverts and not wanting to be around people. My anyway. kind of people. Yeah. Our kind of people. Our kind of people. We say on the eve of us spending a day around people. Yeah. Well, you talked me into that. I Ta did. Tyler, I didn't really even give you an option. I was just like, this is happening. Yeah. You said uh, July 23rd, be back in Oregon. And I was yeah. like, okay, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Tyler's my extrovert friend. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I'm, I'm the extrovert for a lot of people, actually. <laughs> Yeah, you must have a lot of very introverted friends. You just, like, collect them, and you're like, okay, you're going to do things now. <laughs> you're skilled and useful, and to make me look better in public where I want to be, you're going to help me now. And because we're all introverted pushovers, we just say, okay. 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 Yeah. Oh, I can do that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, do we want to talk about what we're doing tomorrow now or wait till the end of the We might episode? as well. I, I mean, we're here um, people don't actually listen to us, so they gain information about authors. Uh, <laughs> I feel like a couple people have told us they do. <laughs> yeah, no, they definitely do. I'm joking, obviously. They, they well, no, show we, can, up. we know Devani listens so that she can do laundry. <laughs> and she actively texts us when there's something she doesn't like about the show. But she also texts us when she learns something wild, so that's, that's nice, true. too. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I, yeah, if you want to talk about it now, we can, or we can save it till the end. We got, I mean, there's we lots of stuff we can talk about well, at the end, so. Yeah, so this, are, I assume the people are going to be hearing this before they hear the other the episode. The chill episode? Yeah. yeah. for sure. So, uh, tomorrow, uh, Tyler has gotten involved with, uh, a town event, the Through the Looking Glass Art Festival, mm -hmm. um, here in Canby, where we are based. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to be doing some live podcasting yeah and it's basically going to be our chill episode for you all um so basically it's an art festival it's got obviously artists it's got um like music and authors are going to be there some local authors and our friend megan waterman from the book nook um, is one of the organizers so she is kind of like facilitated with us to interview some of the local art, uh, authors that they're going to have there yeah so yeah it's going to be pretty casual um hopefully they'll just wander up to our booth and we'll talk to them a little bit about their work and their uh writing process and stuff like that and we'll just have a good time 
Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, and Tyler is obviously going to be uh, promoting his book, too. He is uh, an independent author and has published The Penny Lich. So I'm sure we'll talk lots about that tomorrow. Hey, there it is. I needed to make sure we were actually recording, because how awful would it be if we talked for an hour and didn't record it, right, (laughs) Hannah? I don't know what I do with myself. (laughs) I feel like at this point in my life, 80% of my talking is recorded. Oh, right, because you also record at your day job. Yes, I record all of my interviews. Even though I don't, like, publish my voice, I'm still on the tape. Right. Yeah, I... I actually just did a correspondence episode, which, by the way, I apologize that we haven't done more of them. Those have been coming in, you know, kind of as we can do them. It's not as high priority. I still do. I have three episodes in the bank (laughs) that I haven't been able to edit, but I just recorded one the other day with uh, a couple who started a D&D podcast, and I was talking to them about the idea that, like, like, it's interesting. I've gotten to a point where I use the podcasts that I'm on to justify making friends. Like nobody would want to talk to me if I didn't have a podcast. And they're like, oh, that's not true. I was like, oh, really? Would you guys have wanted to chat with me for an hour and a half over Zoom if I didn't invite you to a podcast? And they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, I guess not. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, no, it's just how it is nowadays. I'm not mad about it. It gives me an opportunity to approach people that I think are cool and be like, hey, come do this cool thing with me, and then we can become friends. That's why I'm a reporter. Uh, we never become friends afterwards, but I'm just like, oh, there's someone cool over there but or it, high profile. Yeah, and it justifies yeah. why you can talk to them. I'm like, I would never be able to email you or slide into your DMs right. otherwise. That would yeah. be weird and creepy. Yeah. says She says to a guy who's tried to email and slide into DMs. It's fine. People. We've all been there. Yeah. Let's talk about a guy who slid into some DMs. <laughs> wow, what a transition. <laughs> Let's talk about a guy who never emailed, but if he did, you would hate to get his emails because they'd be very wordy, but maybe they'd be good. Maybe they'd be the one set of emails that you'd be like, oh, Billy Shakes just emailed me. Yeah, they'd probably be like really clever and rhymey and have yeah. a nice flow. Yeah. And probably talk about boys' faces. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I would like that so much. Maybe he'd slide into, like, Talon's DMs and be like, yeah, oh, shall I compare thee to a <laughs> summer <laughs> day? <laughs> Your beautiful woman-like face. <laughs> yeah. Very pretty boy. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, William Shakespeare, you know, no small endeavor for Between Lewis and Lovecraft. Yeah. We've hit on some big ones before. Stephen King. um, Lorna McDougal's husband, <laughs> Luckily, Frank Herbert. You know, those people were nice because they lived at times when there was more documentation or are living still. Yeah. I I mean, this one, this one was almost harder to get through than Aesop's fables. Aesop. And yeah. His, because at least with Aesop, there was like... Yeah, this might be wrong, but this is the story that everyone pretty much believes. Yes. With with Shakespeare, they're literally like, there are some facts and we have connected them with 
absolute fabrications. Yes. Yeah. So we both read a biography called Will in the World by a dude named Stephen Greenblatt. Mm -hmm. This was apparently a very highly recommended biography. It was biography. the number one recommended. Absolutely. Um, and neither of us liked it. Nope. I did not finish it. <laughs> I didn't either. I made it. I mean, I got all the facts that I felt like I needed, but my biggest beef with this book is that I like I understand that there's not a lot of information about Shakespeare out there. Like, it's a hard job to write a biography about this dude. Yeah. Like, nobody wrote about him while he was alive. No one kept, like, boxes of his papers or right. even, like, letters that he wrote to people. Like, those are big for some authors who lived, you know, yeah, hundreds well, of years ago. Yeah, well, if he wrote letters to his wife, maybe there would be some. <laughs> we'll get into that. <laughs> but, yeah, so it's it's a big hurdle. But my biggest problem with the book is that Stephen Greenblatt goes on for like pages and pages spinning this story and then at the last paragraph he'll be like we don't know if that actually we, yeah, happened. Yeah, we're not sure if like, this is actually Yeah, it. it seemed unlikely that's that's true and I'm like why did you just write five pages about this like interesting story and then say it's probably not true? My problem and that that does bother me a little bit but he presented that at the very beginning and basically said like hey these are all just assumptions. This is, we're not just making this up. We are making educated guesses. And, and here's what we think is actually the case. But we cannot prove it. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have to bear with me. I and don't that, mind the ones where he did that, yeah. um, where it was educated guesses. But there were a few stories in there where he gets to the end and he straight up says, that almost certainly didn't happen. I'm like, okay, <laughs> then why? why? Why did you include that story? Like, just stick to the educated guesses, not the, like, some people have theorized this bullshit. Yeah. Some people theorize that Jesus was an alien <laughs> and he his miracles were just scientific, you know, advances in humankind evolution. And they're all just preparing us for the end times, which is really just when the aliens come back and take us home to the new world. Exactly. But that's probably not going to be what it actually was. Yeah, so, and then I have to cross out yeah. all my notes that I just took. <laughs> but my my biggest problem really was that I'm like, I'll be driving or I'll be working while I listen to this um, with Libro.fm, sponsors Libro. Um, and they, I just, I'll be like working and then I'll realize I'm listening to this book and he's not talking about William Shakespeare at all like I'll zone out for a minute and then I'll come back and he's like and this duke and earl were looking over this plateau and trying to find where the, where the Christian Catholics were hiding so that they can go in and murder all of them and disembowel them and then we transition over to Scotland where the Scots are doing this and they created alcohol that was born in a way and such that no one had seen before and I'm like how long was I? Did I move back to Brandon Sanderson? What the fuck? <laughs> and then he's like, and certainly William Shakespeare had tried that alcohol. And I'm like, bro, <laughs> I do not care. I mean, yeah, he had to fill almost 400 pages. So He didn't have yeah. to. No, he, didn't he didn't have to fill it. There's that book could have been one third of the, of the size that it is. And I would have loved that. So uh, there is probably an audience somewhere that would really appreciate all of the in-depth historical context here. The, 
granted, there were things about the time period that I genuinely enjoyed listening to. Like every time we started talking about the Christ, the Catholic Protestant war, the literal war that was happening at that time, my ears perked up, obviously. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, this is juicy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Protestant. <laughs> Catholics aren't the only ones that disemboweled people. Protestants did it too. <laughs> yeah. So like I was super into that. Right. But it was when he got into stuff that was just like, he got he got into stuff and I can't even remember. I blocked it out. There was a whole day where I listened to this book and I at the end of the day I kind of was just was like, what did I actually learn about William Shakespeare? Almost nothing. Almost absolutely nothing. And it just it annoys the crap out of me. And I I, I want to be mad because it's like, bro, you're you're selling a book about Shakespeare, but he wrote will in the world like he was straight up like hey i guess i'm mad that he didn't he wasn't more explicit with like hey this is about the time period that william shakespeare lived in and a little bit about billy shakes yes i guess the uh the title is accurate it is disappointingly accurate for me Okay, well, so that our listeners actually do learn something about William Shakespeare, maybe yeah, we should uh, get it. into let's it. Talk about it. So, um, you know, spinning off of the theme of not knowing a lot of exact facts about William Shakespeare, he is believed to have been born on April twenty third, fifteen sixty four, in Stratford upon Avon, um, and it's you know that's believed because the baptism of Gilliamus Phileas Johannes Shakespeare mm-hmm. was uh, recorded on April 26th and at the time there was usually a three day like waiting period between when a baby's born and the baptism mm. so you know 26 minus 3 April 23rd um, and Stratford upon Avon uh, was this like village approximately 100 miles northwest of London so it's a ways out there it's, it's not I like guess. in London I mean, that's quick today, but not back then. I constantly am, and this is just something I do. I think it started when I started watching a lot of um, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, Jane Austen stuff, um, where it's like they're talking about England like it's this vast world. You know, and and at one point I'm like, Becca, I know that England's not that big. She's like, yeah, their houses are only eight miles apart. I'm like, why are they acting like they're never going to see each other again? This is insane. And then, like, you start putting it into, like, reference of, like, where you live. Like, Oregon and Washington are basically the size of England, if not bigger, right? Mm-hmm. So, it, it, just, it just drives me nuts, whereas, like, 100 miles away, oh, just the far country. It's like, it's an afternoon drive. <laughs> yeah, eight miles, I feel like, isn't very far, even on horseback. So that would take. They were just whiners. Being the D and D player that I am, DM that I am, I know that it takes in one day of eight to twelve hours of walking, you can go twenty four to thirty miles. A human. A human person can travel that much. I don't think a human normally would, though, because I've walked like fifteen miles in a day and been exhausted. Right. I'm not like, saying I don't it's do fun. It. <laughs> I'm not saying like we do that right now. Let's get up and go for a 30 mile. Uh. I'm just saying if you're marching, if you're a couple of hobbits going to Mordor, you're covering about 24 to 30 miles, 24 most likely, 30 miles if you're being rushed. 
Um, so eight hours would be one third of the day of that. So that would be about a four hour walk. So Jane Austen is a wimp, uh, but a hundred miles is still a ways to walk. Yeah, that's like three <laughs> days to get there. Yes. Four or five days, maybe. So um, little Billy Shakespeare um, was born at a time where, while his parents would have been brought up Roman Catholic, um, Henry VIII had, in the time since, renounced the Pope and started the Church of England, a.k.a. Protestant-ish. I know mm. it's a little bit different than actual Protestantism, but... Yeah. Yeah. So Tyler's ears are perking up. <laughs> <laughs> so religious turmoil at the time. Um, his parents were John Shakespeare and Mary Arden. Um, and theirs was an upward marriage because Mary was the daughter of a man whom John had rented land from. And the Arden family was apparently one of the area's most distinguished, although her father wasn't one of the most prominent members by any means. But like he had a nice last name and mm. some land. Um, Shakespeare was one of eight children. He had two older sisters who died as babies, so he became the de facto oldest. Um, <laughs> he won out. Yes, he survived. Good job. Well it's really done. hard in the 1500s. Yeah, when he's like 45 and all of his friends are dead. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Rough times. Um, his dad was the son of successful farmers and worked as a glove maker. And uh, not like, you know, gardening gloves, but like those fancy gloves fancy with beads gloves. and stuff yeah. on them. Mm -hmm. Some swanky gloves. Yeah. Uh, his dad was involved in a whole lot of shit. Yeah, uh, he wasn't just a glove maker. He did a lot of stuff. The most notable being he sold, get this, I know this is going to be crazy. You're, you guys are thinking like, oh shit, cocaine? <laughs> is he doing like... <laughs> Is he selling weed in the 1500s, uh, you know, under the table? Is he helping, like, like people get high on, what's the what's the acid trip that people always do? Absinthe? No, 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 no. No, I oh, now? ayahuasca or oh, something. Oh, ayahuasca. He's like, I don't think they would have that there. <laughs> I, I know, I'm making a point. Like, he's, like, doing ayahuasca trips with for people. Like, you think, oh, he's undercover. He's doing this on the side. He's got to keep it on the down low because it's illegal. And if he gets caught, he's going to get fucking thrown in prison and his guts will be eaten out by rats he's selling wool what i know which are you you're probably thinking oh shit was wool illegal back then no <laughs> it was totally fine everything was made of wool so why is it illegal for him to sell because he didn't have the proper licenses wow there's a lot of parallels between that and modern day that i can draw <laughs> Yeah, so the uh, the wool selling, the wool trafficking yeah. oh, fiasco. The, the wool trafficking. Yes, yeah. that uh, came a little later in, in John's life and, you know, brought some shame on the family. But before that, he was uh, very heavily involved in civic affairs mm -hmm. and very well respected around town. Uh, he had a number of titles. He served as bailiff at one time, which I guess is similar to a modern-day mayor. Mm. One year, he was also given the prestigious position of uh, Stratford's official ale taster. Oh, yeah, the so he, official ale taster. They thought he could be very unbiased uh, yeah. and impartial when hey, it came to tasting Stratford, beer. Stratford, if you need a new one of those, <laughs> I promise not to sell wool on the side. Call me. Yeah, that's the uh, the only qualification now. They're like, you just don't. <laughs> Shear any sheep okay, on the side. So, uh, we see you like ale, and uh, you are a human being. Those are our two biggest things. One question, though. Have you ever sold <laughs> wool when you weren't allowed to? Fuck. Flips table over. 
I guess I'm out. <sighs> Fucking don't have the licenses for that. Nope. So, uh, you know, before the wool, their family was in a pretty good position. So it's likely that John sent his sons to the local grammar school, uh, which had a very heavy emphasis on teaching Latin. Uh, grammar school, I guess, was basically like public school. It had been established by King Edward the Sixth to offer all boys a free education. <clears throat> Uh, Although some of the poorest boys still couldn't attend since they couldn't afford to buy paper, pencils, and other supplies. Yeah. um, Or they needed to start work at a really young age to support their families. So it was kind of nice, but also like the really poor kids couldn't go. And girls couldn't go, of course. If you want to read a book that goes into that dilemma excruciatingly long, uh, go read um, The Name of the Wind. This is not a bit. I'm legitimately, when I was listening to that part and he's talking about how like, oh, some boys can't afford paper and pens so they can't go to school. Um, legitimately, that's like half of the plot. Who's uh, that by? Uh, Patrick, Patrick Rothfuss. Uh, it's legitimately one of the best fantasy books I've ever read. I'm still on the second one and the third one we're all still waiting for, I think. Oh, nice. Um, but it, half of the book is like, oh, am I going to pay for paper? Oh, I'm so poor, but I'm in the magic school. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh. That's very sad. <laughs> it's a fake character. It's okay. So, but it represents a real dilemma. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so Shakespeare being able to afford paper and all that uh, would have attended public school from about age seven to like 13 or 15. The numbers kind of varied depending on where I looked. Um, And according to the biography that we read, most teachers thought one of the best ways to teach students good Latin was to have them read and perform ancient plays that were written in the language. Mm. So if, uh, you know, one wanted to speculate about what was likely, you know, you could say that this might have been Shakespeare's first exposure to theater. 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 Some E pluribus anus. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) How many minutes are we in? <laughs> uh, we're 25 minutes in, and that's the first reference to anus. <laughs> it will not be the last. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, also, at this time, uh, acting troops frequently crisscrossed the region, uh, performing in neighboring towns. So, again, we could theorize that Shakespeare, if he had wanted to, could have easily, you know, walked or ridden a horse to go watch some plays Mm. there probably wasn't a lot else going on so that would make some good entertainment yeah um uh stephen greenblatt also noted that stratford had a lot of folk uh customs like may day and harvest festivals yeah that was one of the that was one of the things he went on about may day for like ever he was like, and this is all of the customs of May Day and all the rituals and the, and the people that liked it. I shall now list them off now. <laughs> I think I skimmed that part and was basically like, okay, this is giving me like uh, Midsommar vibes or whatever that movie was. I never saw it. I didn't watch it, it but I like read the whole synopsis. <laughs> That's yeah. what I do when I think a movie is going to be too scary. I just read just the... Read it. Yeah, I'm like, okay. Uh, Midsummer and Hereditary. I mm. haven't watched and it's because I'm afraid of them. Yeah. Legitimately. Because I know they're really good and scary. Yeah. So, so. basically William Shakespeare went to Midsummer. <gasps> oh. Is We're that what Midsummer's the- about? <laughs> no, but it looks like it because they've got all the flowers and the, the, the festival and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So uh, Greenblatt notes all of this because um, in a lot of 
Shakespeare's plays, he has a heavy emphasis on these kind of folk customs. Mm. So he's like, okay, this is where it probably came from. Makes sense. Um, so yeah, so as you noted earlier, uh, his dad's upward mobility was abruptly halted when he was caught selling illegal or illegally trading wool. Yeah. The wool was not illegal. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then the Shakespeare's, uh, you know, good luck and good graces really take a turn for the worse. Um, John starts selling off property because he needs money. Um, and pretty soon he had disposed of almost all of his wife's inheritance. Jeez Louise. That's probably good for the marriage. Yeah, she definitely was okay with that. <laughs> yeah. For sure. She's like, God damn it. My dad her, worked so hard for all of that. Her husband gets caught with the equivalent of like modern day child pornography. And now <laughs> he has like to sell. Is <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say pot. Because <laughs> you can still get arrested no, for illegally thing. growing I was pot. literally the worst thing I could think of. <laughs> oh my and God. apparently there's a bunch of people that are getting caught with it. God. Like Jared from Subway. You know, that's the second time this week someone's mentioned Jared from Subway. Is he or, in the news again? I don't know. I was just thinking, I, I don't know. He's literally <laughs> the first person I think of when I think of the worst thing in the world, which is trading child pornography or wool. Or also, I didn't know this. And maybe you brought this up in the episode, but Isaac Asimov's son. Yeah. No, we did talk about that a little bit. Crazy. Crazy. So don't sell wool <laughs> or else it's a gateway drug for <laughs> all sorts of worse things. <laughs> so, yeah, so that wasn't good. Um, and then in 1591, he was marked down for failing to attend church <gasps> because apparently uh, everyone had to go to at least one Church of England service <laughs> a month. Yeah. Attendance mandatory. I mean, that's not too bad if you're asking me. <sighs> um, but. I, I guess it's indicative that maybe his dad was still a little bit well-respected in the town because the local <laughs> officials noted in whatever this ledger was um, that his absence was probably due to fear of being served a process for debt and mm. not because he was, like, protesting church, the yeah. church. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, uh, yeah, but at the same time, and I don't know if you were going to touch on this, but um, his dad, John, struggled with his faith. Like quite a bit. Oh yeah. Like he was he was someone who the evidence was pointing toward him being Catholic. He held on to a lot of his Catholic beliefs and traditions, but then he would go out of his way. Like when he was bailiff, there were a lot of Protestant um, expectations of mm -hmm. him, um, and so there was a lot. There they do point out in this book that um, Shakespeare. Um, probably saw a huge um, contradiction in his father that he himself never was really able to get over. He himself had to deal with, like, I don't know what my father believed, and I don't know what I believe because I don't have that point of reference. Mm -hmm. So that's that's obviously, for me, a very interesting thing to kind of get into. The, the whole... The whole Catholic Protestant war was was interesting and I might actually just go look into a history book about that. <laughs> yeah, you might enjoy that a little more. Enjoy not so much, but I want to know about it. Hey, you can enjoy dark times kind of. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you can enjoy just, the learning process. <clears throat> there's always like 
when whenever you ca- talk to like conservative Christians and you're like, yeah, Christians are responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people all over the world, they automatically are like, yeah, that's the Catholic Church. Uh, <laughs> that was the Crusades and the Inquisition. Okay, that wasn't the Protestant Church. Turns out, no, Protestant Church was straight up gutting people and opening their insides because they had a uh, rosary. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's time to, uh, you know, give the Catholic Church a break and focus on some of the other churches' misdeeds. <laughs> Why can't we all just accept that we've done, that our Awful respective stuff. groups have done bad things at different points in history? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that atheists and agnostics have done very bad things, too. Hell yeah. Agnostics? I don't know. Agnostics, what have they done wrong? I'm going to kill you if you're certain about your beliefs. <laughs> I'm just, I'm putting it out there just in case, you know. I, I don't think that anybody has done anything evil in the name of agnosticism. agnosticism. <laughs> that's, that's my line. That's where I'm going to draw okay. that line. We'll return to that because I... I we're going to get too far off topic. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, I couldn't really find out what happened between ages like 13 and 18-ish. Just um, like Jesus. Wow. Wow. Shakespeare's Jesus. Nope. <laughs> um, but it's likely that Shakespeare worked at the family business, um, as many young men did at yeah. that age. So he was probably making gloves. and. There was like one story. I'm so sorry. You said that way too fast. He was making love. Yeah. <laughs> he was making well, so we, the family we're business. Get to that. You know, the family business, he's making loves, you know, left and right. Not using gloves. <laughs> no, he was probably making gloves and left at, and right. Left and right. Thank you Hands. for acknowledging left, the right. joke. That was so punny. Oh yeah. my gosh. I'm a dad. <laughs> Uh, how many minutes has it been? <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. I can make it a real joke. Hold on. <clears throat> yeah, I've been uh, I've been looking for my gloves everywhere, left and right. Huh? <laughs> Dad joke. It's a real shame your kid can't understand you yet. He'll listen to this when he's old enough. Um, uh, and at one point in the biography, I don't know if you saw that part, but um. Stephen Greenblatt was talking about how, like, years later, somebody found some note that went along with John Shakespeare's gloves. Because, like, I guess he would give the customer the gloves and they would have, like, a little just some sort of promotional thing in it. And it was like a little it was like a little um, mini poem and it had the word will in it. So they're like, oh, maybe William Shakespeare made this pair of gloves and snuck his, like clever little signature in there there's a lot of people that are hoping shakespeare snuck a lot of things into a lot of stuff <laughs> i think i know what we're gonna talk about Hell yeah, we're gonna talk about that <laughs> so yeah so he was probably making gloves loves <laughs> um unlike many of his contemporaries shakespeare did not go on to university most likely because his dad was out of money yeah so no oxford for you shakespeare too bad uh but there was a lot of sex for him, so he had that. <laughs> because when he was 18, he started seeing this lady named Anne Hathaway. Yeah, you're gonna have to um you're gonna have to kind of clean up the timeline. Cause I was really confused. When he got to this, 
I thought that he was talking about being 16 and sleeping with Anne Hathaway. No, everything I saw said he was 18 and right. she was 26. Right. I thought he had mentioned something about a 16-year-old, which obviously I'm like, gross. Okay. Um, I didn't know if it was him or her that was 16. I missed that part. But now you're saying it's not. But then there's someone else that's a part of this. Or at least that's what this guy wrote in his book. I wasn't getting any 16-year-olds. But there is a third person. There's another woman. I got one later on. Hmm. So, okay, you keep going because I genuinely don't know. And I was hoping you were going to kind of straighten me out. So as as I read it here and with some other sources, like because of the nature of this book, I went some other places to see if I could get a simpler biography, including like um, Shakespeare.org and like Encyclopedia Britannica and stuff to try to kind of straighten out the uh, timeline. Um, So he started seeing this older woman. Uh, pretty soon he knocked her up and they rushed to get married and weirdly um, age of consent at the time was 21 which I did not know Mm. so William would have had to get his parents permission to get married and uh, most men at the time didn't even get married until around 28 which was totally shocking to me because I was like oh I would have thought everybody was starting families when they were like 18 yeah especially since yeah most people died in their 30s yeah but Um, it was actually super uncommon to get married early that is weird on top of like i know that there's a period where people were having child brides with their cousins that have been like (laughs) promised to them at birth and some shit so when did that change when did we like that was like the 1800s so where in 300 200 years did we go from 21 is the age of consent, which I think is appropriate to be completely honest, <laughs> all the way up to, yeah, when she's having her period, she's ready to go. That's God telling us she's ready to go. Yeah, I always thought that whole thing was more of like a a straight like line up. But now it seems like a roller coaster. Yeah. It's like sometimes we wait till we're 28 and sometimes we wait till we're 12. Yeah. And wasn't that a whole thing in Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. where like she's like 14, 15 getting ready to be married off to her cousin who's older? Mm-hmm. So yeah, was so- that taboo when he was writing it or was that okay when he was writing it? I would think it would be taboo because yeah, like according to this, it was weird for him to get married at 18. Was it a cultural thing, England versus Italy because does Romeo and Juliet takes place in Italy, right? I think Verona. so. Verona. <clears throat> so is it like Italy was cool with? Yeah, child or maybe brides? they were like, you know, trying to be mean to Italy. Oh shit! blaspheming the I don't know if that's true or anything, but yeah, I think that is an interesting question, and it would be interesting if any um, Shakespeare experts can let us know yeah. what the uh, purpose of that in Romeo and Juliet was. Because yeah, because I'd read that in high school, I assumed that that was normal and then reading this i was like what like most i think the average age of marriage for men now is 28 i'm like i would not have expected them to be the same i got married at 25 25 years old and i felt like i was getting married pretty late compared to a lot of people in my family and stuff um but yeah i don't know i think i think everybody's different yeah every culture every city everywhere is different so because they had to rush to get married, um, mm-hmm. some of 
Anne Hathaway's uh, late father's friends paid their marriage bond so they could, like, speed up the process. Um, And they got married in November of 1582. Their first daughter, Susanna, was born six months after the wedding in May of 1583. A miracle baby. Early. So here's where I'll interject with what I had read. And he, he points this out. I know I heard him talking about how he there was another woman that he wanted to marry um and there's evidence of that where Anne Hathaway the marriage certificate doesn't have William Shakespeare's name on it it's a different name that's close to William Shakespeare but then there's a marriage certificate for like two days earlier that was still incomplete and it has William Shakespeare's name on it with a different woman's name on it that was in that book. I totally missed that part. Yeah. And so, like, he had, like, kind of proposed that there was another woman and that he did not want to be with Anne Hathaway. And he only married her because, obviously, because she was pregnant. Um, but he had been in love with some other woman that he, and maybe she's the 16 year old. I don't know. <laughs> I genuinely, I'm trying to just figure out where a 16 year old fits in all this because I remember him saying 16. <laughs> I was like, gross. But he was 18. So. Still gross, okay. According to our laws nowadays, well, and you know, as a cougar, is, I, I feel personally victimized right yeah. now. Morality is is um, completely subjective, and <laughs> it's only gross if you live in a time frame and a place where it's gross. <laughs> Man, that's history in a nutshell. I feel yeah. like I, I've had full on arguments with that nihilistic take on stuff, and people get really upset with me. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we might uh, talk more about that in a little bit with some of the, <laughs> I think the that's customs the first time in you've London. I've just been like quiet after I said something. I'm trying to keep us semi on track yeah, you, here, Tyler. You go back. We're, we're 40 minutes in. We're like 16, 18 years old. <laughs> so, like most 18 year olds, Shakespeare did not have the money to care for a wife and a child. Yeah. So, he and Anne lived with his parents. Um, and Susanna was followed by twins Hamnet and Judith in February of 1585. Uh, Hamnet unfortunately died at like age nine in August of 1596. Or no, 11. I can't do math. He died in August of 1596. So um, Shakespeare at that point just had Susanna and Judith and his wife. Um, and there's a period of time about seven years after the twins were born where no one really knows what the hell Shakespeare was doing. And these are uh, referred to as the lost years, which sounds quite enchanting. He's probably enchanting. just working, right? He's probably. just taking care of his family. God, there were so many theories that Mr. Greenblatt put out there, uh, including one like rumor that he went on the run from the law because he got caught poaching yeah. on some land. Oh, my God. And that was the one where he went on for like five Forever. pages. And then he was like, but, but that dude mm, didn't even own land at the time. So it seems untrue that Shakespeare was poaching on his land. And they probably land. just said that because it made Shakespeare look cooler. Because yeah. that was actually a cool thing to do back in the day for college age kids. <laughs> to poach Le- deer Legitimately, or that was his whole thing. He's like, this is just what college age kids would do. They'd go poach because it was a dumb law and they all knew it. So Shakespeare probably just did, probably that he did something else. And then people said that he poached, and that was it. So what everyone needs to know is that nobody knows what the hell he was doing for seven years. Uh, just a quick tie-tie the Bible guy. Uh, there's a story of uh, Jacob who went to go find a wife. So obviously he went to his cousin's house. Um, <laughs> and when he got to his cousin's house, 
um, he saw his cousin's daughter and was like, oh, I love her. Give her to me. Uh, and so his cousin was like, um, sure, except first you have to work for me for seven years. Uh, so then Jacob worked for seven years for his cousin so that he can uh, own his cousin's daughter. Gross. Uh, <laughs> I've seen <laughs> this, this in the worst way. such a way. great story. <laughs> uh, so that was Rachel. He, he wanted to be with Rachel. And then on uh, their wedding night when she was supposed to go in, um, his cousin was like, hey, bud, go in there. You know, get yourself hot and bothered, and then I'll send my daughter in, um, and then she'll finish you off, and you'll be married. So he goes in there in the dark tent and gets all hot and bothered, and then instead of sending in Rachel, the girl that that he loves, his cousin sent in his other daughter Leah, who goes in and finishes him off, and so now he Poor married Leah. Leah. Uh, yeah, I know. Fully just like, yeah, okay, dad, thanks for sending me in to go have sex with your cousin and now be married to him. Uh, and then, um, and then she goes and then he's like, hey, cuz, what's up? I didn't want to finish inside of Leah. I wanted to finish inside of your daughter, Rachel. Remember? And so he's like, okay, okay, okay. For You can have Rachel, but you have to work for me for another seven years. And so he's like, all right, well, I love Rachel so much. I'll work for another seven years. And then on that night, I'll get all hot and bothered. And then Rachel, and then he tries to sneak another girl in, I think. And But then Jacob figures it out and then just goes and like basically rapes Rachel instead and then they get married. So then he has two wives that he worked for for 14 years. The point being... <laughs> Wait, can I first say that <laughs> literally nobody does Bible stories the way you do? Okay, make your point. The point is uh, that story, something that you can gather from that story, the, one of the messages that is taught to a young teenager like myself when we're, when we're reading that is that you, you need to put your head down and do the work for what you love, even when things don't work the way that, that you expect them to. Um, it's a stupid story <laughs> with a stupid moral, but it also is a good moral to have the idea that you're going to work for some shit that through some shit that you don't want for something you do want for seven years. All of that to say he probably got to a point in his life where he was like, I need to provide for my family, and that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I like that point Yeah, that we finally got to. All right, I'm going <laughs> to shut up for a little bit. <laughs> that took a lot out of me. So after seven years of doing whatever the heck, uh, sometime during that uh, period, he arrived in London, that place that's 100 miles away from his yeah. wife and two kids, um, and he established his reputation as a playwright and actor by about 1592. So one of the historical things that I was actually very interested in about this book was that London at the time was just like bonkers violent. Um, <laughs> they had all these public whippings. They had stocks. Uh, executions were apparently happening almost daily in Elizabethan England. Uh, severed heads stuck on poles on one end of London Bridge. Yeah. It's like Game of Thrones or something. Yeah. Um, and animal torture was just like normal entertainment um i totally forgot about this but in the second pocahontas movie <gasps> i was like traumatized as a little kid because that's the one where she's in london and they have this like party and then they bring out a bear and it's all chained up and they're like jabbing it with spears and this was very terrifying for me as a child yeah but apparently this was totally normal then they yeah. uh they called it like oh god i forget what it was bear caging or bear something it was just like 
like a normal play, basically. So London sucked. Yeah, they it, well, yeah, back then They're it was baiting. like it, there That's was no was. there was no story to plays. That type of play. They, well, yeah, they I mean, it, it wasn't a play, like a play, but it was like it was like going to the was, movies, there was going an to arena see a bear where baiting. they would just. It's basically the Coliseum. And you yeah, got all kinds of shit going on. So he makes. He goes through all of that to make the point that, like, when Shakespeare is including extreme violence in his plays, he's likely drawing on firsthand observations because, like, it was so public. Yeah. He's like, the bloody heads in Richard III and Macbeth, like, the blinding of the Earl and King Lear, um, that was all stuff that he could have witnessed firsthand because London was insane. Yeah. Um, so this is where things start to happen. Yes. We're 45 minutes in. Let's start talking about his career. His career. As, a, as an actor and a playwright and all that, all that jazz. Yeah. So he's breaking in first as an actor. Um, and, and acting and the official theaters were still very new to London. Um, but... At, by the time he gets there, like they already have the the first public playhouse and dedicated arena for acting. Um, so the theatrical company that William Shakespeare is most often connected to was called Lord Chamberlain's Men. Um, and this was the most popular company of players in Elizabethan and Jacobian uh, Jacobian. Jacobian on England, King Jacob. Um, it played at a variety of different um, venues, um, in including um, this one called the Theater, which was like the biggest at the time. Um, and there was also like a lot of backlash from the church to theater mm-hmm. um, because it was associated with like heathenish Romans. But the extent to which they kind of uh, exercised their power over it was basically limited to getting shows banned on Sundays. And in a way, their anger only intensified public interest. Like, it's yeah. like, oh, the church doesn't want you to see this. I'm going to go see it now. Kind of, that's yeah. so weird how it's the same now. Yeah, exactly. People never learn. Um, so the plays were frequented by commoners and aristocrats alike, even though sometimes it was like looked down upon as being like for the the commoners. Um, so yeah, at first Shakespeare mainly acted with the company and only occasionally submitted plays or sonnets for them to perform. Um, but since companies weren't roving or going town to town, they couldn't just master one play and perform it again and again for the whole season. They had to keep audiences of up to 2,000 people filling the theaters and would do as many as five to six plays a week. So that means that like each company might expect to introduce 20 new plays every year while also like keeping a rotation of old plays. This presented a great opportunity for Shakespeare because he wrote quickly and had already absorbed several theatrical styles. Um, So crowds flocked to see Henry VI in the late 80s. This was probably his first play, um, certainly his first great hit. And he quickly followed it with Richard III and uh, Titus Andronicus. Uh, He also wrote comedies, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, Taming of the Shrew, and The Comedy of Airs. And his colleagues pretty soon realized that uh, Shakespeare's plays drew in the biggest crowds, and he became their main playwright. They were like, yo, that dude's doing cool shit. (laughs) Oh, shit. This guy's good. Yeah. Um, And I'm mentioning this guy because he'll come up later, but Richard Burbage, uh, who was considered one of the most famous stage actors of the time, played most of the lead roles in their company, including Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, and Macbeth. Um, and so, yeah, we mentioned that that this was like the most popular um, theater troupe at the time. Members of the royal family were really big fans of theirs. 
Um, and when King James the first took the throne, he decided to sponsor the company, and so they changed their name to the King's Men. Yeah, pretty legit. Yeah, you got you got uh, <clears throat> Colin Firth in there. <laughs> you got uh, uh, what's the Michael Caine? He's in there. I didn't watch the King's Men. Oh. It's a really violent one, right? Very Where like a dude violent. gets cut in half and it, he like peels off to the side. Yeah, I, I'm sure I walked that in the room where the, when that happened, and I was like, "Nope, not gonna keep watching this." Yeah, it's a it's a violent series, and it's pretty fucking awesome. <laughs> um, so early in his career, Shakespeare's plays were mainly biographies, like Henry the Sixth and Richard the Third. And for a while, scholars even thought they were pretty historically accurate. But eventually, I thought this was really interesting, scientists examined the remains of Richard III and realized that Shakespeare had really exaggerated his physical uh, appearance. Uh, He portrayed the king as a hunchback with a limp and a withered arm. And while the king's spine did have like heavy scoliosis, the other deformities just weren't there. Hmm. So that kind of like debunked some of the historical accuracy. It is interesting. And I don't want to argue with you about this, but I've watched several documentaries about it. About uh, Richard III? Yeah. Uh, not a, my behest. Not because I wanted to, but, but because Becca's very interested in it. Um, and there was one documentary where there was a chick who was like obsessed with Richard. Um, and when they they found his body and dug him up, you know, in a parking lot. That's like the big thing that happened. That's a real thing. I'm not even making that up. His body was buried and then they put a parking lot over the top of the burial site. So when they found the body, they had to like break open the concrete and Mm -hmm. pull him out. They did a bunch of experiments and she's all like, oh, he's going to be perfect. And he was a beautiful man. And they're like, nah, his leg is fucked up because he was mutated and his back is messed up and his teeth were the reason why he died because you know all of the cavities and shit and he was basically a monster and she just started crying and my wife rebecca's like what is wrong with this woman (laughs) she is obsessed with a dead man he's been dead for 400 years get over it yeah that woman has problems i don't know where i read that was from the the doctor who did the examination so yeah. maybe, maybe, she, maybe maybe she's wrong more and the leg was weird in the stories but he he was still uh, apparently pretty mutated as a person and it was mostly from incest gross um so yeah so another thing that was that i didn't realize how important it was to shakespeare was the sonnets i mean i thought this was something he did because he like straight up yeah. loved poetry yeah and he's he's fa- like i think he's probably a, the most famous sonnet writer of, of all, all time, time. Yeah. i didn't realize other people did sonnets yeah i think i knew that they did but i was just like shakespeare's the 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 big one so so for people who don't know what this specific form of poetry is it's basically a 14 line poem written in iambic pentam- pentameter and that's just referring to a pattern of stressed and unstressed syllables so it's like the kind of bouncy writing or whatever you've yeah. got two feet yes that like to walk <laughs> to the store to buy new shoes so that you walk back home in comfort that better than shakespeare i think hell yeah i just made that up by the way that was a sonnet it didn't quite rhyme but uh, we'll it doesn't need to it's poetry it's called freestyle <laughs> nope it's called sonnets <laughs> i am big pentameter so i didn't realize that part of the origin of sonnets were that they were kind of commissioned to give to specific people they were like a uh 
It was like really, a game. Yeah, it was like a common tool of courting people, basically. And it was a challenge to make them as like intimate, emotionally vulnerable and romantic as you could, while also making it so only the person you wanted to see it would understand you were referring yeah, to it was them. Like a, it was like a riddle within a poem. Yes. And and if you imagine if you imagine a bullseye, like like darts, you're throwing darts, right? A sonnet is the bullseye. Right. And it's the one person who can read it and go, oh, my God, I get every single line. I understand every single reference. This is a poem written for me. And then the next line, the next like section outside of that bullseye would be the people who know the person the most. Right. You know, like yeah, they're friends. Whether it's friends and family, but like very close friends, mom and dad, lovers, people who are always around this person. And they read it and go, oh, my God, I understand some of this. And I I know that this poem is for this person. Mm -hmm. I know enough about this poem to know it's about this person. And then outside of that ring is people who know about the person and know, like, they read the line and go, oh, I've heard that this is about this person. And I can totally see that that kind of makes sense. And then you have people outside of that who don't know the person and they read it and they're like, this is a beautiful sonnet. Right. Like, and that's it. And they're just, they're still enamored by it, but they don't understand it at all. Mm -hmm. There's like that, those rings within rings within rings. I like that um, analogy because, yeah, I mean, the very best sonnets like Shakespeare's were still entertaining, even to those people on the outer ring who didn't know anything about the key players. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, in, in the biography, Greenblatt argues that the first 17 sonnets published in uh, 1609 as Shakespeare sonnets, it's a collection of 154 total. Um, he says that these were written in the 1590s on commission from the family of Henry Riothesley, um, the Earl of Southampton. Um, and this dude was a 19-year-old a who apparently loved the theater and was a fan of Shakespeare. So it makes sense that his family may have specifically sought out Shakespeare to write these sonnets to their son their I, reason quick, just just to just to jump in real quick yeah could you imagine you have a son <laughs> who's not doing what you want him to do we'll get into that in a second um and so you're like in order to get my son to do what i wanted to do i'm gonna go ahead and hire um george rr R. martin <laughs> to write a fucking story that when my son reads it will go, huh, maybe I should do what my parents want me to do because George R.R. R. Martin wrote a story for me. It's a winning strategy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing that that Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Riothesley wanted their son to do was fucking get married. Get married to a girl. Yeah, marry a woman. You know, you're but an this earl. this guy is so conceited that he won't w marry a woman because he doesn't think any woman is worth him because he's a beautiful young man. I also saw that he was like against the institution of marriage in oh, general. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> Come on. Even I'm against the institution of marriage as like, oh, it's property exchange <laughs> that's been turned into a government facility using the church in order to facilitate it. It's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> But guess what, buddy? Still love my wife. <laughs> so, yeah. So his parents wanted him to just stop being a little dickhead and commit. 
Um, so many of the sonnets in, in the first 17 uh, reference a beautiful, strong-willed young man who has refused to marry, uh, and they try to convince him of reasons to find a bride. And like one of them, it's like, oh, you're really beautiful. You're going to have a beautiful baby. Don't you want to see your face on a baby? Yeah. Which like appeals to his conceitedness. Yeah. So that makes sense. Um, but yeah, so sonnet writing was especially important for Shakespeare around the summer of uh, 1592 because in June of that year, London's Lord Mayor uh, apparently ordered all performances suspended after there was a riot outside of a play. He was mm. like, no more theater for you guys. Well, because of the plague, too. No, Yeah, and then later that summer, the bubonic plague rolled through the country again. This came through like... And like 10 times over the century yeah. so they'd already seen it before and officials knew by that time that quarantine was like one of the things you could do to stop the plague that and killing your dogs and cats yeah well yeah the cat don't kill cats because the plague is in rats and cats kill rats so he yeah. has made it worse um but the the quarantine thing probably helped so they shut down the theaters and other public places except church of course because are we living in shakespeare's time i just wanted to confirm real quick because everything that you're describing about the time frame in which he lives it's starting to sound kind of familiar <laughs> well except i think we did shut down church during the plague so we got a we little more tried <laughs> you well, kidding me yeah you can't unless you're actually gonna you're arrest not gonna people take god and... <laughs> for me i'm gonna go sit in a room and I'm going to worship the Lord, because if I don't, I'm not a real Christian. That was it. That was my entire... That was your spiel? That was my conservative Christian <laughs> thing. Uh, do you want to get a, a talk radio show? Welcome back to Christian's Go to Church Radio. That's the worst title ever. <laughs> if you think the government's going to stop me from going to church... I'm basically a WWE character. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, while everyone was, like, dying from the plague and stuff, uh, Shakespeare gave up the plays and spent a long time writing sonnets and other poetry. Um, and also, so, so more supporting the theory that, you know, these sonnets were commissioned for a specific person. Yeah. Um, in the 1590s, he publicly dedicated two long poems to the Earl of South. Uh, Hampton and one of them Venus and Adonis published in 1593 was a smash hit mm. especially with young men mm -hmm. wow these young dudes just poetry bros um, <laughs> it's nearly poetry bros <laughs> poetry bros <laughs> they were all over this 1200 line what's up poem. poetry bros welcome back to between Lewis and Lovecraft we've got 17 sonnets to get your dick hard Ew. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah so Venus and Adonis uh <laughs> It's basically about, you know, the goddess of love and her attempted seduction of Adonis, a gorgeous young man who would rather go hunting. So, yeah, I can see how that appeals to bros. Yeah, like, man. Oh, this beautiful chick is all over me, but I just want to go kill a deer. Yeah, I'm so tired of being covered in bitches. I just want to go out into the forest with my poetry bros, dude. Shooting deer? Fuck yeah. So... This poem was reprinted 10 times by 1602, so I think that's better than most poets these days do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this was kind of how he was making his money while his theater career was getting going and also while the plague kind of put a halt to it. Um, 
so yeah, so around this time, uh, the Shakespeare name was finally getting some respect again. Yeah, in- by this time, he's gotten the uh, the flag or whatever for yeah, his family, right? So well, he. I think maybe that was partly due to him, but his dad had been working on that for a while, too. In 1596, John Shakespeare was finally able to secure a family coat of arms. That's it. Which was huge in signifying that the family was now accepted in the upper classes. So, Hell yeah. Yeah. He, his dad uh, accomplished that like long-lived goal of his. And because Shakespeare was actually, he wasn't just an actor and a playwright, he was also a partner in Lord Chamberlain's men. So he got more of their profits. Nice. Um, So by 1597, he had enough money to buy New Place, which was the biggest house in the center of Stratford-upon-Avon. And he bought that for about 120 pounds. Can't find inflation rates going back that far. Only to 1750, when that would have been equal to almost 30,000 pounds or close to 35,000 American dollars. Hmm. So right. to steal the housing market was very good back then. Yeah. Um, but even though he bought this manor, he still lived as a bachelor in London while his family was 100 miles away at New Place. Of course. Because what are they going to do? Come see him? Yeah, no. He doesn't need those, those leeches in his life. He's too busy being a poetry bro, <laughs> writing sonnets for beautiful young men in the city, Hannah. At least J.R.R. Tolkien like had his wife on the campus somewhere with him when he was like off hanging with his Oxford bros. Yeah, Like Shakespeare true. kept his 100 miles away. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so as the, as he was getting more well-known, um, they had like that minor drama with their theater. They had been using the theater, Mm -hmm. literally that's the name. Uh, but then in 1597, the landowner refused to renew their lease. Uh, and Richard Burbage, that main actor, uh, he was the brother-in-law of the guy who built the theater and his brother had helped like fund the building of it. So yeah. while the landowner was away over Christmas, they literally went and like took down the building <clears throat> and used the timber to build their own theater on the south bank of the River Thames. Yeah. Which is like the most badass That's thing pretty ever. Badass. Yeah. Um, so they opened the Globe Theater in 1599, which is the company's most famous home. I, yeah. I feel like everyone's and kind of heard about the been, Globe. That's been reconstructed here in Oregon, right? Down in Ashland. In Ashland, yeah. yeah. I, I've never been to the Ashland one. I'm yeah. a bad uh, literary nerd. But yeah, that would be cool to go see at some point. We'll do a show there. Oh, that's aspirational. I like that. Yeah, lots of ass there. <laughs> You've gone into poetry, bro, mood, and I am not here for it. <laughs> bro, we're going to fucking go down to the Globe Theater in Ashford and get ass. So if anyone has not heard of the Globe Theater, it was believed to be a massive three-story open-air amphitheater that could see up to 3,000 spectators. And, like, I think the population of London at the time was somewhere around 100,000. So mm. 3,000 is huge for, for that. like 3% of the city. Yeah, so uh, it's also often shown either as round or a 20-sided polygon Ooh, in construction. a D20. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> um, 14 years after opening uh, on June 29th, 1613, a theatrical cannon misfired during a performance of Henry VIII and set fire to the thatched roof, literally just made of, like, reeds or something super dry so within minutes the whole structure was alight and in under an hour the globe was completely burned to the ground uh most sources i saw marvel that no one was killed in the fire like i I think one source i saw said maybe one person died but they weren't sure Hmm. so it's it's incredible that 
thousands, <laughs> hundreds of people didn't die. Um, but they built a second Globe Theater on the same site by June of the next year, and it remained there for nearly 30 years until the first English Civil War began and all of the theaters closed. So mm. the Globe had a long and successful History. life. Yeah, that was um, great. Yeah. There is a Globe in Stratford-upon-Avon or in London now, I think, but it's not the... I thought it was the original one. Right. And I was like, oh, that would be so cool to go to someday, but no, it's it's not there. Gotcha. It did not last 500 years or 400 <laughs> years. Um. So yeah, just like going over some of the other highlights of his career... We know he wrote at least 37 plays between 1588 and 1613. So that's 25 years, more than a play a year. That's pretty prolific. Um, he's also like credited, credited with uh, inventing 1,700 plus words. Mm-hmm. Really, he most likely just was the first person to write them down. Yeah. Uh, and they were probably used in society. Um, some of the ones we still commonly use include accommodation, bloody, Critic, disheartened, gnarled, laughable, puking, torture, and unreal. All right. Thanks, Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, some that didn't catch on, Armgaunt, Impeticos, Pagic, and Whoppend. 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 I think that... I like uh, doodle flop. Doodle flop? It's an insult. Actually, that's a good one. Yeah, I agree. I've tried to use it in my doodle everyday flop. life. It would just sound like you made it up. I know, but I didn't. Ah. <sighs> Um, he also invented or first documented numerous phrases that we still use today, like there's a method to my madness from oh, Hamlet, right. wild goose chase from Romeo and Juliet, uh, vanish into thin air, Othello, heart of gold, Henry V, and all's well that ends well from all's well that ends well. Yeah, I think I knew that one. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's kind of in the title. Um, also, I think you maybe alluded to this theory earlier uh, mm-hmm. that Shakespeare may have had a hand in writing the King James Bible. Uh, not just a hand. Uh, he wrote the, the whole entire Shakespearean. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Not Shakespearean. <laughs> King Arthur. Not King Arthur. Damn it. James, I've had a drink or two. So now I'm like, I'm all fucking poetry bro up, bro. <laughs> poetry bro. Uh, I'm not tie tie the Bible guy anymore. Um, so uh, I. Th- from what I've read about it, uh, the if you, there's actually a test you can take online where it puts up on the screen something from Shakespearean literature or something from the King James Bible, and you have to guess which one it is. Oh. And most people cannot, like, cannot figure out which one is which that's interesting um and then there's a whole there's a super conspiracy theory in it um is this the 46 ones can i explain it because i have it in my notes yes but real quick so there's this conspiracy theory and basically it comes down to like he was in the king's men so king james knew who he was for sure he was the most prominent writer at the time uh, the writing styles are almost exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So even if he didn't write it, people think that he at the very least influenced the language of it. I believe that. And then this. So the weirdest proof, quote unquote. It's very weird and dumb, but it's there. So this project to translate the Bible from Latin to English was started not long after Shakespeare's 46th birthday. And some historians... Uh, who didn't have any relationship or anything else going on in their life (laughs) figured out that if you count to the 46th word from the beginning of one psalm you get shake 
or yeah, it's like Psalm 46 or mm. something. Yeah. If you count to the 46th word from the beginning, you get shake. And if you count 46 words back from the end of the Psalm, it's spear. Mm. There you have it, guys. There it is. Shakespeare. 46 shake, 46 spear, Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. I'm. I, it's interesting. I don't I, think it's proof. First of all, does not fucking matter one way or another. <laughs> Um, the Bible is the Bible, and it was not written by William Shakespeare alone. Yeah, I mean, um, this is a translation. So obviously you have some flexibility with the translation, but it's not like he and, invented it. And you can deep dive. I mean, and maybe we should eventually maybe do a history of the Bible. I'm going to love that episode because you're going to do all of the explaining. Um, And (laughs) translating the Bible is not something where they where they like are like, hey, Billy, here's the Latin Bible. Make this English now. That's not how it works. Um, They have an entire council of people that go through the Bible and they're like, Okay, let's start with verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And they read that in Latin and they go, okay, what does the word in mean, everybody? And then they argue about that for the next month. And and finally, they come to a consensus that this word in Latin, that's probably like dominus or some stupid ass word. And they're like, we all agree as a council that that word means in awesome what does this word mean i think it means the let's talk about it everybody that's how the bible's translated and then when it was retranslated into the new king james version and then the est and then the niv and then the message and then the new american translation it's always a council of people that sit down and go, this is what we think that these words represent in English. Um, sometimes there's an agenda. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they translate things to be specific ways so that they can push certain things. Are you uh, saying the church has an agenda, Tyler? I'm saying humans have an agenda, Hannah. That's also true. Um, and some of that could be that... King James himself was trying to prove to people that he wasn't a homosexual. And so he was like, hey, everybody, these words that we don't actually know what they actually mean in English because they were made up by Paul. Um, We're going to go ahead and say that those are gays. And if you disagree with me, I'll behead you. So have a good day. I figured one of the words out for you. That's amazing. That was my little spiel for that. We need to do a Bible translation episode. So, <laughs> If so you yeah. want a Bible translation episode, email us. At lewisandlovecraft at gmail.com. So, yeah. Uh, so that's basically all I had for his career before we uh, close out with his personal life. Yeah, we could cover that real quick. Yeah. So um, be, the, the short story is that Shakespeare's has no direct lineage. Um, so he had two daughters. Susanna married a dude named John Hall. Um, they had one grand or Elizabeth Hall, the only one of his grandchildren that was born in Shakespeare's lifetime, was born a year after they were married. Um, they had three sons too, but all of them died young. 
Uh, the first at just six months old, the second lived to 21, and the third lived to 19 before they both died in 1639, possibly from the plague, mm-hmm. all the plagues. Um, and none of his grandkids had kids. So when Elizabeth, the granddaughter, died in 1670 at the ripe old age of 60-something, uh, his lineage ended. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, crazy. Yeah. It's kind of a bummer, but... A little bit. I mean, I don't know. I'm not... I'm not super uh, invested in people's lineages. Yeah, so it like, okay, fucking matter. there's no Shakespeare's alive today. His lineage is his stories. Is his, yes. is his work. It's his that work. Has influenced the world in ways that's incalculable. Like it's, it, it's so profound that we don't even we take for granted how it influences us. Mm-hmm. So. I, yeah, because there's so many modern versions of Shakespeare stories. Like whether they explicitly state it or not, like. I don't need any more like Hamlet or like Macbeth remakes or anything. But well, like uh, not Lord of the Rings, uh, Lion, Lion King, King yes. is just that's Othello, the, right? Uh, no, that's Hamlet. I think. Oh, it too. is. Yeah, because that's the one where his uncle is trying to kill him. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So I, I'm a big fan of kind of not remakes, but you know stuff that's inspired by Shakespeare like that. Yeah. I don't need the literal. The Lion King is its own damn story. Yes, Hakanabatata <laughs> or whatever it's called. It's its own thing. Yes. They don't have. I'm guessing they don't have that song in Hamlet. They the do not. I right. think Shakespeare would probably not like that, or maybe he would. Maybe he had a great sense of humor about stuff like that. But yeah, so his his legacy lives on through literally every form of media we consume. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, now we got to talk about Anne Hathaway. Uh, she's a great actress. She is. She's so, good. she's so talented. <laughs> uh, but Shakespeare really didn't treat her right, <laughs> as far as we can tell. So you mentioned, you know, he never wrote his wife any damn letters nope. that we can read to learn more about his Not life. Not even in his will. Yeah. He, he also never dedicated any poems to her yep. or wrote any that even seemed specifically about her. Like, nope. he didn't have to use her name. He could have just, like, written about someone who looked like her or someone he was madly in love with, mm-hmm. but he didn't. And, and like you said, writing about young boys. And in his will, the only thing he left her was his second best bed with the furniture. Yeah, which was, from what I've heard, is supposed to be a big slight in some way. Uh uh, yeah, this dude said that some historians will argue, oh, no, that's, like, actually really thoughtful because you save your uh, – that's the bed that you give to your guests or whatever. And it's usually even better than your marriage bed. I don't – He. it seems like he did not like his wife yeah. very much. Um, and, yeah, I don't know if that's because they were, like, forced into it or if Shakespeare was bisexual. Oh. <gasps> I knew you were going to be very excited to get to this part. So <laughs> why, some historians, going to be excited? You, even for the the authors that seem less like um, obviously gay or bisexual, you always have your theories. So here's one where historians made the theory for you, Tyler. That's very true. They did um, the work. So there's a few like historical reasons for this. Like since women weren't allowed to perform in the theater, female roles were always played by men including romantic scenes and making out um Mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons that the church looked down on the theater they were like we got men kissing men what's going on here yeah we can't have that yeah that's totally gay so you know it's a little um the the theater culture has some experimentation associated with it maybe 
Um, and also, while it's hard to know whether to read anyone's poetry is autobiographical um he's got several sonnets like sonnet 18 shall i compare thee to a summer's day um and several no, others that are, is not a bitch is not a bit <laughs> several of these are interpreted to be love poems about a man yep. and if you want to speculate even further it's uh that the man is henry riothesley the <gasps> earl of southampton <gasps> um so yeah he that Earl did get married eventually. Sure. To the delight of his parents, I'm sure. But yeah. but what do you think? Do you think um Shakespeare and the Earl were in love? I've talked about this before. Um I always have it's fun to hear theories and to stuff, but at the end of the day, I, it doesn't fucking matter, right? <laughs> what we do know is that he was awful to his wife. He yes. literally deserted her and went off to go make out with dudes on a stage. Um those are the facts. Um, whether he enjoyed it or whether he left her specifically so that he could go make out with dudes on the stage, we'll never know. He never wrote it down. He never said, <laughs> I verily thus enjoy to thrust a man. I don't know. I I'm was... <laughs> so sad. I started to drink at that moment. But it, it doesn't It doesn't matter. It's all speculation at this point, and <clears throat> it, it's not like it already – he already did something awful. It's not like the reason why I get genuinely excited about stuff is because there's usually a secret that somebody's trying to hold back. And when it comes out, it, it ruins everything. And it's like, bro, just be honest from the beginning and you wouldn't have ruined everything. But he went and was like, it doesn't matter whether I'm gay. It's not, it doesn't matter. Gosh dang. I can't say the stupid words. <laughs> We need to, I need to not be around you because I hate you as my wife. And that's the worst thing I think he could have done. Um, now, it, <clears throat> some people say, oh, he went off to go achieve what he wanted to achieve. And then he sent money back. And then he was like taking care of the family, doing what he loved doing. But I think that if he had not been successful at it, we wouldn't be like oh he had achieved what he wanted to achieve no he'd be like no he's a fucking asshole who left his wife and he can't even support her now yeah but he ran off anyway so success doesn't justify the action of being an asshole and that's what he is in that moment at least that's what he is he's an asshole well and unfortunately i mean you could argue that it's still this way in our present day but also uh stephen greenblatt notes that throughout history a lot of the most famous poets and writers have dedicated their work not to their wives but to their mistresses or mm -hmm. like women they or wished they would buddy. have married or their friends um in one passage he's like dante wrote the passionate la vida nuova nuova not to his wife gemma Don donati but to beatrice whom he had first glimpsed when they were both children so too petrarch who was probably ordained as a priest wrote the definitive european love poems the great sequence of sonnets to the beautiful laura and not to the unnamed unknown woman who gave birth to his two sons Jesus. so it's just it's a very depressing passage in this book about like all the dudes who just write their greatest works to for someone for else. someone who's not their wife and I was that their wife is almost a, just a reminder of reality mm -hmm. it, it's it's crazy to me that there's almost a curse of poets forced into marriage or like because all of the poetry is so romantic about the prospect of wooing someone and like convincing them to fall in love with you 
And then once you get to the actual marriage part, they're all downers about it. It's yeah, like, what was hear, the point? You don't hear a ton of poetry about commitment. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very depressing. Um, it, it, it is It is pretty crazy. So at the at the end of the day, whether he's gay or not, or bisexual even, it, it doesn't matter. I, I, I don't think that's the defining thing in his life for me, whether it's, you know, his writing or his sexuality. It's the fact that he was willing to leave his wife, his family to pursue what he wanted to do. I'm not a fan of that. Mm -hmm. And, and so if he did it because he was gay and he hated his wife, it would be the same. It's still bad. Yeah. So it does. It, that doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I get excited when someone's gay and it's like this, like, uh, Ernest Hemingway, who's the man's man. He loves. Where it would actually change something yeah, about your perception yeah, of them. Uh, but then he goes and spends uh, time with a dude skiing around Europe and the dude was gay and paid him to be with him. And he's like, oh, no, we didn't have sex. I promise. <laughs> but my but my mom did put me in women's clothing and I did spend a <laughs> summer with a man. Or or Lovecraft, where it's like, oh, I got married, but I hated her, and so I'm going to go spend time with a 14-year-old boy in Florida. Yeah. That sort of thing, where it's like, it's not the fact that they might be homosexual. It's the fact that their actions, because of their sexuality and the fact that they try to hide it or some shit. Yeah, they're kind of weird. It didn't seem like, even if he was, like he was going to hide it. Yeah. So, yeah. who cares? Who cares? <laughs> So, uh, Shakespeare died at 52 years old. Many believe on his birthday. Again, he was buried two days after his birthday on April 25th, 1613, or 1616. So, they just said he died on his birthday, April 23rd. Um, Nobody's really sure how. Some speculate syphilis caught Mm. from brothels in London. Of course. Possibly. Uh, Other historians, I guess, uh, found a diary written 50 years after his death in which someone was writing about Shakespeare going out drinking with his poetry bros. Poetry uh, bros. Drinking too hard and dying of a fever shortly afterward. And some have suggested that he had contracted typhoid or another illness hmm. sometime earlier and it just happened to set in then. So nobody knows. He died. Yeah. The end. The end. And his stories live on, his characters live on, and it's because he was able to observe the world around him and create characters quickly because there was a need for him to do so. Um, And he wasn't writing to be the greatest writer of all time. He was writing because he needed to get butts in seats. Yes. But in a way, he captured, you know, these immutable human characteristics and archetypes. and also, like, offered us a, a glimpse of the world at the time, while yeah, also on, telling it in stories that are still somehow relevant today, yeah, which is on hard top to do. of his love of language. Yes. Like, and that's what sets it apart, right? So, you, you have the ability to capture a moment with flowery language. And that's why it's, I think, been the perfect combination. Mm-hmm. So, I hate Shakespeare. I never want to read anything by him. I have the hardest time watching any of his movies. The only one that I've been interested in watching is the new Hamlet with Denzel Washington, uh, but it's only because it looks cinematically beautiful, not because (laughs) I'm interested in Hamlet at all. Yeah. Yeah. I 
I think I tried to like Shakespeare at different points in time. And I think now that I've gotten older and kind of more comfortable with my own reading preferences, like it doesn't hurt me to say like I'm I'm not, not into Shakespeare. Yeah. I'm not into poetry, but I do appreciate what he has done for literature on the whole. So I think it's yeah. interesting to know where he came from so we can have more context on our current um literature and plays and, and the movies fact that and he was, stuff. He was a part of the process. He didn't just write stories from his it wasn't like Dickens where he was just in his own room writing stories and then they get sold and whatever. Mm-hmm. Like he was the part of the process. He was an actor. He was helping break down and build theaters mm-hmm. so that they survive. He was um, being in the city when there was a plague. He was doing things. And that's what I really like about him is that he was a part of the world that he was, you know, right. writing in. He lived it. He didn't just to. observe it. Yeah. So that is all I have to say. I think I went on two sermons today, so maybe three. So yeah, but they I were think, like a little shorter, so it's yeah, fine. Yeah, and we're almost an hour and a half in, so. That's fine. Um, so Tyler, let's tell the people where they can find <clears throat> us. Um, you can email us at lewisandlovecraft at gmail.com if you want to let us know what your favorite like work by Shakespeare is, what your opinions on his plays are, something like that. Maybe give us a little more context. That would be appreciated. Yeah, I want to hear from you. Write us about Shakespeare. Tell us what you think about Shakespeare. We we have a chill episode coming up. Um, we'll probably have another one. Um, so tell us when did you, when were you um, first introduced to Shakespeare? Do you have a favorite Shakespearean story? What's your favorite movie adaptation? That's what I want to hear. There's a lot Ooh. of them, so let's let's hear about that. I'm gonna have to try to figure mine out because I'm gonna feel really lame if I say The Lion King. <laughs> That's a good one. If that's your favorite one, then that's your favorite one. As of right now, that's my favorite. <laughs> All right. There you go. You can also reach us at facebook.com slash Lewis and Lovecraft or on Instagram at Lewis and Lovecraft. That's where we tend to be the most active. And check us out on lewisandlovecraft.com where Tyler has our merch uh, featured very prominently on yeah. the homepage. Yeah. 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 You can go uh, buy shirts with our ghoul gang logo, or not logo, but design our um the you know the club that Dave Vonnie and I have started basically the the existential crisis club from Frank <laughs> Herbert uh there's a shirt for that there's our classic logo there's uh Lil, Lil Lovecraft. Lovecraft my favorite uh so yeah go check that out uh make sure you subscribe to our show so that you can keep up with all of the fun stuff our deep dives our chill shows our uh, correspondence episodes subscribe to us wherever you're listening to us and rate and review us if your platform allows it they do on Spotify now um, also on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser it's really helpful for us to have more ratings and reviews too even if it's just a few words like let people know what you think of the show and that'll help us bring in more listeners yeah absolutely if you're looking for a way to just support us really quickly throw in you know a couple of stars up and then just like this is a great show it helps people find our show helps people find our show also pod chaser you can rate specific episodes so if there's a if you like our show you can do that but then if there's an episode you really like or don't like you can say so specifically on pod chaser but what's the best way hannah that people can help us best way is to write a letter to a friend in shakespearean english and convince them to listen to our show write a sonnet write to the earl of southampton yes (laughs) no just uh, tell a friend 
yeah, just tell your friends about us. And uh, if if you like our show and you want your friends to hear about all the cool authors and stories and stuff that we talk about, they can uh, check us out. Um, until then, our next episode, our chill episode from live from Wake Park, <laughs> Camby. Um, we hope that uh, you guys stay safe out there, ghoul gang. Stay safe. And remember, tragedy is for whores. <laughs>